the first, first thing I want to do is start off by just uh, remembering back to what our previous week was. Uh, if it was anything like mine, I'm sure it was crazy and uh, full of taking kids around to different places. Going For me, it was going to youth group. We had uh, family reunions this week. That means that we're off-site, and so we did this thing called a penny date where you flip a coin to decide uh, what direction you're going to turn. And uh, so we did this for about an hour, and the kids thought it was really lame, and then we stopped at an ice cream place, and they, they were all happy. But, but uh, the point is, is that, that we're all super busy all the time. When we try to make time for prayer or the study of God's word in our, in, uh, on a daily basis. The problem is that even when we get up early or, or stay up late, if you're a night person, that these things are always beckoning at our hearts, that we're always... Uh, we're always reminded of the things that we haven't done yet, the things that are to come during the next day. In doing this, we are taking on our days under our own authority or our own power instead of looking to God for our strength. Well, what we need is uh, God's strength for vigor for the next day or that day to be strengthened to, to teach God's authority under God's authority through our own lives. This morning, as we, look at the, <clears throat> excuse me, as we look at this psalm of praise from David, what I want you to notice is that, um, is that David isn't just praising God simply through song, but in many different ways. Let's, uh, I want you all to think back to the days of old. Some of you may have to think a lot further back than I do, but think back to when you were seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Think about the, the people that you put on the pedestal of your life. For me, I ate, drank, and slept baseball. Like, that's what I wanted to do all the time. But don't ask how you eat or drink baseball, because that's ridiculous. That's a silly statement. But growing up, I, I, had, I put these people on my heart or on, the, on this pedestal, people like Ozzie Smith or Albert Pujols. Uh, these, these people were larger than life for me. One of them, as I got older, that I, I played with was Ben Zobrist. Uh, he's just a man, just like you and I, and that's what we have to remember. Yours was probably might have been different. Yours might have not been a baseball player. Yours might have been a scientist or, or an engineer or a painter. We have to remember, though, that these are men and women just like you and I. They're no bigger than we are. They're no better than we are. We've done this with Bible characters as well. We look at King David and maybe the biggest of all characters. We put him on this pedestal that at times it seems like he's done no wrong, and yet we, ha we have in Scripture that that's far from the truth. What happens, though, is when we do this, when we put these people that are larger than life up on a pedestal, when we're not trusting God for what's to come in our day. We've made our God small. This morning, as we reflect on what David has written here, if for a moment, let's forget about our troubles of the week. Let's forget about the week of busyness of our lives and praise God for who he is and all that he's done for us. So let us stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Psalm 103 this morning. 
it's a little lengthy, so bear with me. And then I'll ask a blessing on our time. David says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for men, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness... Uh, to those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and the kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Father God, Lord, I thank you so much for, uh, again, giving me the opportunity to teach this morning. Lord, as Pastor Phil said, that I asked that I would get out of the way, Lord, I pray the same thing. Lord, as you've laid these words on my heart this week, as I've studied and prepared this message Lord, I pray that you would be glorified through, uh, through my words, through our thoughts. Lord, that the distractions of this week would pass from us if for a moment. Lord, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here, David, starting off, rightly recognizes in verse 1, who we are and how awful we really are compared to God. David has made it clear in this psalm that we, uh, sorry, David has made it very clear in this psalm that we are not the ones to be praised, but God only. He says in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. 
what he's doing there is simply recognizing that God is the only one who deserves praise. Before he moves on into the rest of his teaching in this psalm, to the rest of his praise in this psalm, David doesn't just jump into that, but praises God first for who he is. So in that, David reminds us first that we are troubled. We are troubled. This is first because of our sinfulness. The who here, uh, in verse 3, says, who forgives all your iniquity? The who here points us back to God, the only one who has the power to forgive our sins. This is a Hebrew word, avon, which means guilt or great guilt or depravity. What David has done here in the first three verses is, is make a contrast between us and God. And though this may seem like a simple few verses or a few words, this chasm between God and man is greater than what we can comprehend. At no point does God share iniquity with us. Paul tells us in Romans 1, Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What Paul's doing there is he's talking about all of us. We all exchange the truth of God for a lie. Every time that we sin, we're not trusting in who God is, but we're trusting in what we desire. We're exchanging that truth of God for a lie. He's putting himself in that same category because he goes on in Romans and says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul puts himself in that same category as well. It doesn't matter if you're the one up here teaching this morning or you're the writer of Romans. Either way, you're a sinner. John Owen, a great Puritan writer, writes uh, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, he states about our sinfulness. He says, As sin weakens, so it darkens the soul. It's a cloud, a thick cloud, that spreads itself over the face of the soul and, inter and intercepts all the beams and intercepts all the beams of God's love and favor. It takes away all the sense of privilege of our adoption. And the soul begins to gather up. And if the soul begins to gather up thoughts of consolation, sin quickly scatters them. What he's saying is, is our sinfulness works against God at every moment. Even when God is, is uh, putting his privilege and his love on us, our sinfulness is constantly working against that, even us as Christians. Because you and I really don't have that hard of a time of sinning at times. This trouble also involves our sickness. It says again in verse 3, and then he continues in verse 4, what David is saying here is that our sicknesses are normal. They're normal sicknesses that we all face on a daily basis, whether that's the flu or a cold, allergies, cancer, or heart issues. The second thought about this word sickness is that it also has to do with a, a 
uh, sin issue within our heart. That our sinfulness will lead to sickness. Moses talks about this in Deuteronomy 29, 18, 19, and then he continues in verse 22. He says, Beware lest there be any among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord, our God, to go and serve other gods of those nations. Beware lest there be any among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. He continues in verse 22 and says, And the next generation of your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far-off land, will say, When they see the affliction that is on the land and sicknesses, sicknesses, with which the Lord has made uh, made it sick. So there's sicknesses welling up within us from our sinfulness. And what he's saying is when others visit this land, this promised land of Israel, they will see the affliction that God has put on this land and these people because of the sinfulness that's welling up within their hearts. You can even see this in the life of David and his sinful act with Bathsheba in the murder of Uriah. That because of this, and the child that was born to Bathsheba through that adulterous relationship, the child died in that because of their sinfulness. God, though, is the one who heals. God is the one who has the power or authority to make one well from the inside out. No man can do that. These bodies of flesh are simply rotting away. God, though, is in the process of redeeming this world in his perfect timing. David makes makes the observation also that we are troubled in a third area. That is our smallness. We are tiny. He says in verse 14, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. What David is saying here is that he does know our frame. David says in, one thir- in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and know, uh, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. He continues in 13 through 15, You have formed me, you have formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in the secret, in secret, intrinsically woven in the depths of the earth. David knows that we are created by God and that we come from dust. You see, the verse before, David, uh, David was saying in, in um, where is that, uh, verse 13, that the Lord shows compassion. Another word for compassion in some translations use the word pity. God has pity on us because 
We are small. I recently read a, a biography uh, from Laura Hillebrand about a World War II bombardier named Louis Zamperini. Uh, they made a movie about it called Unbroken. And it's, it's a wonderful biography, and it's, it shows, uh, really, it shows God's plan of redemption through this one man. Uh, but what I really love about it is it shows how broken and frail we are. It shows how insignificant we can be. What happened is uh, Louis, th this World War II bombardier, he's in, he's in his plane, and they're searching for a, another plane that had gone down. And what happened was their plane stopped working, and they crashed in the, in the Pacific Ocean. Three men survived, and uh, they had two life rafts that were barely big enough for the three of them. And all three of them survived over 40 days, which would break the world record of how long people could survive in a life raft. And they did this by uh, taking the pins that were on their shirts and, and fishing. They had birds that would land on their raft, and they would kill them and eat them. And the, one, of, one of the gentlemen died after about 40 days. Louis and his pilot, Phil, uh, continued to live on the raft for almost 60 days. When they entered their plane uh, on that last day when they left Hawaii, they were both, or all three of them, were about 160 pounds. When Louis and Phil were finally rescued by a Japanese um, a ship, they were less than 80 pounds. What it shows is how frail we are. Man can't go more than three days without water, and then we'll die. One pastor had this to say. He said, David rejoiced, although he, uh, although David rejoiced that although God knew us, he continued to show compassion towards us. He is our creator and knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our shortcomings and our failures. He knows our sinful tendencies and rebellious ways. He knows we are incapable of securing our own righteousness. He knows that we are utterly dependent on him. He knows our needs and our fears. He knows the struggles we face and the help we need. God knows us. The last area that David shows that we are troubled is our shortened existence. He says in verses 15 and 16, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. I don't know about you, but there's something about, about working in the garden. I, I, I do like it. My wife would, would disagree with me because I don't do it that often, but I, I, I do like working in the garden. I, I like getting my hands dirty. There's something about the spring and the fall when, when crops are being harvested and the, and the soil's being plowed over. There's something about the smell and the air of the dirt. What David is saying here is that we, though we have, because we have frail bodies, we are like annual flowers, the, the flowers that we have to plant every year. Uh, they have short growing seasons, just like you and I. Uh, we may think that 
70, 80, or 100 years is a long time. But in reality, it's not. Charles Spurgeon says, we are, our, we are not cedars or oaks or rocks, but we are flowers of the field that die. You see, our lives are shortened, are shortened because we are delicate. We are frail. David says that even a strong wind blows us over and the flower is gone. The whole point is that we are insignificant in the grand scheme of things. When we put ourselves in a place of significance in the grand scheme of the universe, we become awfully small very quick. We are sinners that cannot be in God's presence lest for the sacrifice of Jesus. We are sick both physically and spiritually all the time. Our bodies are constantly fighting infection. And without that, we would all die pretty quickly. But David doesn't just stop there and show how small we are or insignificant we are. But when we look at the whole of the psalm, we can see that this is a psalm of praise to who God is. He quickly points us to God's transcendence. This is first seen individually. If you like to mark up your Bible, this would be a good point to do so. You see in this passage of, of Scripture, David is not just singing out a song to God that, doesn't, that the words don't have significance, but he's pointing to his attributes. In verse 1, David recognizes maybe the greatest of God's attributes, one that we need to be reminded of on a daily basis, and that is that God is holy. In verse 6, we see that God is righteous and just. You can underline those two words. He goes on in verse 8 and says that God is merciful and gracious, angry and loving. I'm going to stop there because we could, we could preach an entire sermon or a sermon series on God's attributes of who, what they are and what those look like. We do this, we put these descriptions on God so that we can understand him better. The problem is, though, is that these terms, in, 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 in the way that we think about them, don't do God justice. You see, we do this so that we can know who God is more fully. I want to describe my wife, I describe what her attributes are. She's gracious, she's loving, she's kind. If I want to describe Pastor Phil, I would say that first he's funny, and he has a crazy laugh that makes me laugh even harder. He's one of the most humble men that I've ever met, and he loves those around him. Here's, here's the thing that we have to remember, though, that God is holy. And because he is holy, all of his other attributes are holy as well. So when he's angry, he's completely angry and yet holy in his anger. He's also loving, and he's completely loving. The other thing we have to remember about this is that 
we are only capable of one or maybe two attributes at a time. It's, it's hard for me to be angry with my kids and yet be loving towards them at the same time. Anger is always much easier. God, though, in his anger towards us, because he is angry with us all the time, he's angry because we are sinful people, and his anger burns against that sin. But he's loving towards us as well, and we can see that in the sacrifice that he sent, that of Jesus. This is also seen personally. You see, God made man to be in relationship with himself. And when Adam and Eve uh, broke that relationship in the garden, man was no longer holy to be in God's presence. They were separated after that. God made a way, though, for us to be with him in relationship, and that's through the sacrifice of Jesus. That we may not only have eternal life, but so much more, and that is an eternal relationship with God. We can see the results of this in verses 2 through 5. David first tells us not to forget his benefits. This starts with God's common grace. As I got up this morning and, and was reviewing my my notes for this morning, I was outside and witnessed the sunrise this morning. It was early. Uh, I don't know how many of you were up, but it was an amazing sunrise. The rain that falls, falls on both the just and the unjust. God's common grace is amazing. The next thing we see in verse 3 is he forgives all your iniquity. This is a huge thing that, shouldn't, that we shouldn't gloss over lightly. Without the shedding of a blood, the writer of Hebrews says there is no forgiveness of sin. This is why Jesus had to come and die. You can also see what a personal effect that has on our eternality, that either we go to heaven or hell. God also heals us from the sickness that we have in our lives. This is either by a miracle, that means something that is without or something that we don't control, or through medicine. Ray Pritchard states this about, about this. He says, remember that any healing in this life is limited and temporary. Our ultimate healing comes when we are raised immortal and incorruptible. In that happy resurrection day, when Jesus comes, and Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then at last, we will be totally and completely and finally healed once and for all. In verse 4, verse 4 reminds us that God is the one who redeems. This is both eternal uh, this is both the eternal good that is waiting for us in glory, but as well the good that we have here on earth. This does, not, this does mean the material things that we have. Most of us drove here in a car this morning. That material possession is good. It's good for us to use. The house that you live in, the food that you eat, those are all good things that God has given us. These are not sinful uh, things that we have. This doesn't mean, though, that I can name or claim anything that I want. I don't get to go and 
say, say to God, well, I'm, I'm gonna, I want a new car, and I want a new house, and get those things. It doesn't mean that I can go and just ask God for the job that I want and that he's going to give it to me. That's not what this means. Eugene Pedersen, in his version of the scripture, the message, he says, he wraps you in goodness, beauty eternal. To be satisfied means to be so full that you need nothing else. It's what happens at the end of Thanksgiving dinner when you simply cannot eat anything else. When you've had two helpings of everything, and even though there's more food on the table, you cannot eat any of it. If you are, hung uh, if you are hungry, to be full or satisfied is a wonderful sensation. But that satisfaction eventually wears off, and you have, and you have to eat again. We also see in this third area that, that God transcends nationally. So David is not just talking about the blessings that he's received or the blessings that those around him have received, but he's also talking about the, the blessings of the nation of Israel. He invokes the name of Moses. Moses probably the fourth most known of the Israelites at this time. Probably more well-known than David himself. You see, you, you have the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are probably the three most known at this time. Moses, being the leader of Israel out of Egypt, the fourth most. Invoking this name meant a lot to the people of the time. God, speaking through Moses, speaking to Moses, showed a lot of these attributes to Moses as he walked and talked with him. As Moses met with him, on how to lead this nation of Israel. As Moses spent time on, on the mountain with God, God manifested himself through the nation of Israel to make the other nations jealous of them so that they may be brought to salvation. The last area that we see that God is transcendent is celestially. It's, David says in verses 19 through 22, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in the places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The angels in heaven are even praising God for who he is because God transcends over all. Paul says, talks about this in Colossians when talking about Christ. He says in Colossians 1, 15 through 17, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And he is before all things. 
and in him all things hold together. The idea that God is transcendent over creation, even the heavenly beings, is so crucial to our theology. Because if he's not, if God doesn't transcend over the angels, if he doesn't transcend over any other religion or God that's made up, God does not deserve to be praised because he's less than what we're saying that he is. God, though, is the only one that deserves to be praised. Talking about this transcendence, um, there's a quote that's going to be on the screen. Here, here we go. When we say that God is transcendent, we mean that he is separate from his creation, not dependent on the created order in any way. The Almighty made the universe, and he is therefore its sovereign ruler. A biblical view of transcendence does not mean that God is unable to enter into his creation or communicate with it. He is also imminent, present within the universe that he has made. Nevertheless, creation is not God. That's pantheism. Nor does God depend upon it. Creation instead depends upon our creator for its continual existence. Without the creator working within creation, within our daily lives, we would simply evaporate. We would be gone. One way I like to think about this is my relationship with my boys. My son Jake will celebrate his birthday tomorrow. He'll be nine, and he's finally playing real baseball. He played against Reggie a couple weeks ago. I don't remember who won that game, Reggie. Who won that game? Oh, okay. Uh, no, but, uh, but Jake loves baseball. If you ask either of my boys, they will, they will both tell you that, that, that they're going to be professional baseball players when they grow up, as, as I did. What's most inspiring to me, though, is with Jake, when, when we're sitting and watching a baseball game, he always wants to learn about it. We talk about what pitches are being thrown, why the pitcher is throwing uh, pitches in, in specific locations. We talk about um, areas of, of the game that, that probably a lot of nine-year-olds could care less about. We talk about situations. We talk about how to hit the ball. In a lot of ways, my knowledge of baseball transcends Jake's understanding of what the game is or can be. This, though, is an inadequate illustration because I am not God and I do not transcend baseball. If I did, I probably wouldn't be standing here preaching this morning. I'd be playing professional baseball some, somewhere. But, but the illustration still works because Jake comes to me for his knowledge, just as we need to go to God for our knowledge of how to live our lives, because God is the one who transcends our understanding. What I want us to understand, though, is that because we are troubled, and because God transcends, we must then, therefore, turn and worship him. This turning involves all that is within us. At times, it, this seems to be so difficult. As I stated at the beginning, we're so busy all the time. Even when we cut out time in our day to have 
alone time with God. These things are always beckoning towards us. We just finished up our, our, sermon, in, our sermon series in James. And many in this, at this time were leaving their faith because of the, per, the fierce persecution that they were facing, both by the Romans and the Jews. Today, we don't have much of that in our country. We see that around the world, but we don't see people losing their lives in Western culture, at least not very often. I think a greater killer to our faith is our distractions that we have. We're constantly distracted. I have the entire internet at the tip of my fingers. There's more technology in my phone than there was putting a man on the moon. That's a crazy thought. These distractions, though, we must turn from them and to God, the one who deserves all of our affections. Write this down somewhere in your outline. I came across this quote from the Benson Commentary, it says, let all my thoughts and affections be engaged, united, and raised to the highest pitch in and for this work. That is praising God. Let me say that again. Let all my thoughts and affections be engaged, united, and raised to the highest pitch in and for this work. Our response should first be found in obeying God's words. We see the angels in this passage as our example of what this should look like. David says, Bless the Lord. Oh, you angels, you mighty, on, you mighty, who do, uh, who do the His word, obeying the voice of His word. Two things I want you to remember from this here: qu clearly, David is writing after the fall of the angels. That's that happened even before man was created. So there's been a split in what God has created here. Those angels that did not follow Satan are in heaven doing what God is asking of them. They're being obedient to who God is and what he's saying. We see this in Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. It says, In the year King Uriah, uh, Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings. With two uh, he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house of the Lord was filled with smoke. The point here is twofold. One, that the angels were doing what God had called them to. That's all these two angels do is cry out back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the second is that the praise of God should always be on our lips in all that we say and do. 
So since we are created slightly below the angels, we can look to them as our example of what our response should look like. The second idea is that we can see angels all throughout the scripture fulfilling what God has called them to. Some are ministering to others. Some are delivering messages. But they're all fulfilling in obedience to God. This is not just praising God in this throne room, because if God could only be contained in a throne room, then he would not be God. God is spirit. He's greater than, than everything. He's bigger than everything. One of, while I was in school, one of the things that bothered me the most was uh, we had these, um, these discussion boards. That was kind of our classroom. I did online, online education for college. And one of the things that bothered me the most is when students would make a separation between the sacred and the secular. There is no difference between that because if there is a difference, then God is now small. God has become less than what your issues are. God does not transcend at that point. The way that I conduct myself in my job, and the words that come out of my mouth, the things that I look at on the internet, the way that I spend my time, are all part of my ministry as well as yours. I'm not called to anything higher at that point than you are. Everything that we do, everything that we say should glorify God in some way. We can see David is thinking the same thing in verse 22. He says, bless the Lord all his works in all the places of his dominion. This means that all places are his dominion because God is everywhere. Now that we know that we are to obey God, to obey God, uh, what God has called us to, and that there is no separation between the sacred and the secular. We must fulfill that calling by walking in his ways. David here is recognizing there's works involved in our faith. We just read that, we studied that in James. I'm not saying that we're saved by our faith. That, that's not true. But what I am saying is that Without the works that we have in our lives, we don't have evidence of our faith. David says in verse 21, Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. I think if you're like me, many times I struggle with what God's will is. I'm contemplating going back to school and getting a master's degree, but what's God's will in that decision? I know that I'm called to public service. I feel that. I know that. I know that God wants me to stay in my job working for the city of Naperville. But what's God's will in, his, in my decision to, to go back to school and get a master's degree? And sometimes I can sound like a whiny child, contemplating what God's will should be or what God's will is. Many times I find myself sitting on my hands saying, well, I don't know what God's will is, so I'm just going to stay, stay put. I think the important thing is to know that we all know what God's will is. 
we can see that one in the pages of scripture God's will if you want to know what it is just open the Bible and you you will you will soon begin to know what God's will is it's not difficult here's the here's probably the, the most important thing it says in Matthew 28 starting in 18 it says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me that is Jesus and he says to his disciples go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold I'm with you always to the end of the age you want to know what God's will is for your life start making disciples if you're not doing that you're not fulfilling God's will in your life that doesn't mean that you have to be a preacher but it does mean that God has to be on your lips all the time. Another way that we can do this is fulfilling the myriad of one another commands that are, that are in Scripture for all of us. You start loving your neighbor, you will blow their minds. You love those next to you, you will, they will feel that love. So in closing... Let us remember that we are so very troubled. God is bigger than everything. He transcends all your sin. He tra transcends all of creation. And this should drive us to turn from ourselves and worship God, as David has done in this psalm. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank you again for for the words that you've prepared, that you've put on my heart. Lord, I pray that in the distractions of the week, in the uh, issues of our life, Lord, we would not make you too small. Lord, that we would recognize that you alone deserve praise and glory. Lord, that you would be glorified through our actions, through our interactions with those around us, through our co-workers, co at our job, and the interactions that we have with, with those in our community, with our neighbors. Lord, that as we live out one another commands, that others would be able to see you in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified through the worship of the teaching of God's word this morning. Lord, and as we sing in this final song, that we would cry out from our hearts and worship you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.